Last time, we looked at the opening chapter on sin certainty in the phenomenology of spirit. I will begin this week by looking at how Hegel develops his observations on sin certainty and perception into an account of force and understanding, which in turn transforms into his famous account of desire and recognition. The chapter on force and understanding concludes Hegel's analysis of the transformation of naive certainty into self-consciousness. Briefly, Hegel's analysis of sin-certainty shows that we assume the truth of the immediate world. Sin-certainty assumes our experiences are passive, that is, our immediate consciousness is continually receiving data from the external world which imprints itself on our mind. Sin-certainty seems as if it is the case, and in subsets we want it to be the case. But what we intuitively grasp as apparently true is not at all compatible with reality itself. This disjunct continually compels us onto other forms of self-understanding. A good way of thinking about what Hegel is trying to articulate here is how consciousness is both theoretical and pre-theoretical. Pre-theoretical in consciousness is the immediate givens of sincerity. Theoretical in the sense that we can theorise the reasons that sincerity is the way it is. If consciousness is both theoretical and pre-theoretical, it can be understood as both being for itself and a being in itself. Beings in themselves are objects which cannot be other than what they are. It makes no difference to my microphone that it is on a table. It is only in itself. We, on the other hand, are also beings for itself, whose existence and what it can become is an issue to which we are not indifferent. Since human consciousness contains both these moments, that is, we are the things that are humans, as well as the humans that are agents, we can see that interrogation is inherent to our tingliness. Put another way, we are the things that are self-interrogating and self-understanding beings, and really cannot be understood as things at all, ultimately, since what we are is open to alteration. In some sense, then, consciousness is inherently divided in itself. Consciousness, at least at this stage of our voyage of self-understanding that is the phenomenology of spirit, cannot rest within itself or remain satisfied with itself. Here we can see transcendence implicit to any form of thought. We desire to resist self-interrogation and self-understanding as much as we desire to transcend sincerity. Thus the phenomenology of spirit is a passionate defense of philosophical thinking. Consciousness comes to self-understanding when it engages in philosophical activity or thinking. Consciousness is the thing itself and at the same time goes beyond the limits of its thingness as a self-interpreting and self-questioning animal and thus becomes formed as self-consciousness. The human is certainly a body, but better, a body of thought that continually attempts to transcend itself. To further develop this insight, Hegel turns to the question of force. In the chapter on force and understanding, just prior to when Hegel elaborates self-consciousness, he turns his attention to what happens to understanding when it discovers new truths. Since certainty and perception themselves are limited forms of understanding, you might ask, what exactly is perceptual consciousness limited to? Well, it is determined by the sensuous field itself. Perception is tied to things perceived, which strikes one as obvious enough. In our immediate perception, we assume objects are stable. This cup is this cup, that pen is that pen. Even if technically we only experience an object from a certain profile, we have a natural assumption that the object is whole. 
like Kant showed, we never directly experience the object in itself. We just assume its objectivity. But Hegel does not reach the same conclusion as Kant. When we attempt to understand the totality of the object from different perspectives, we grasp that the object is in flux as we experience it. We walk around an object to see the other side and we realize that the totality of the object is phenomenal. That is, we experience the object qua perceivable object or as perceivable object as it appears to us over time. Here we can see again the mix of the one and the many. Consciousness posits a thing which is at rest and in motion at once. But this is a basic contradiction. Of course, Hegel has a less dim view of contradiction than philosophically conventional. Unsurprisingly, this opposition requires an other element to, to move the triad forward, and this comes in the form of, of uh, force. The chapter in The Phenomenology of Spirit is complicated but important. There is a lot going on here, and Kant, Leibniz and Newton are in the background. The first thing we need to grasp is that Hegel is trying to understand the historical development of self-understanding. And at the time of writing, after Newton, we were beginning to have a whole new understanding as to what constituted nature. When Hegel calls the chapter force and understanding, he is quite serious. He is asking what is understanding in light of contemporary scientific developments on force. Scientific developments need to be incorporated into our sense of self-understanding. Hegel sees that our historical development, or better, the historical development of our self-understanding, has reached the insight that there is no separation between mind and matter. Hegel is therefore not a dualist in the Cartesian sense, where mind and matter are two separate substances. We can also see here where he differs from Kant. Kant, although acknowledging the reality of experience, does, at least residually, retain a type of dualism between the subjective forms of transcendental consciousness and objective perception. Hegel, on the other hand, aims to collapse the distinction of subject and object. While in sin certainty, we retain a distinction between subject and object. The object exists as an object in itself for me. The cup is just a cup, the pin is just a pin. They are unique substances in themselves for me. But now, thanks to Isaac Newton, we effectively know that the cup is not just a cup. It is something else entirely, as it is composed of forces. Hegel has in mind here Newton's third law of motion. The third law of motion states that when two bodies interact with each other, they necessarily apply force of equal magnitude in the opposite direction, or, as is put colloquially, we have reaction as an equal and opposite reaction. Another thinker who Hegel holds in the background in this chapter is Leibniz. While Leibniz and Newton differ on many things, they do have something in common, and that is that the truth of nature is not a thing or an object, but force. Both argue that the reality of the world is force itself. Let's take an example. Suppose you came to visit Britain as a tourist and top of your list was a visit to Stonehenge. And then for some bizarre reason you thought, you know what, I would love to kick one of the giant stones of Stonehenge. So you take a nice long run up, build up a good velocity, take aim and you give one of Stonehenge's rocks an almighty kick. Common sense tells us that you'll not be able to kick that boulder all the way into the Irish Sea. For Leibniz is because of inertia. Inertia is the innate force of matter. The stone of Stonehenge, while static, exerts a force against your foot. Hence matter is no longer the thing which we can reduce all other things to. Specifically, the truth of the giant stone in Stonehenge is not reducible to its material properties, but rather the force it expresses. 
again, the truth of the world is not a thing or object, but activity and reactivity expressed as force. This is even more clearly the case with Newton's three laws of motion. In a metaphysical register, we could say that which is substance or substantial in the world is force. And what's more, every force is counteracted by force of equal measure. What does all this mean for Hegel? Well, it is quite a radical thought in the history of philosophy. If we think of substance in the conventional Aristotelian sense, substance is the form or identity which holds together all the different material properties of an object. Here, substance or essence does the work of making an object what it is. Hegel thinks that after Newton and Leibniz, substance is force. Unlike the classical view of substance, force is not something that exists purely unto itself. Force for Hegel is pure activity. It is not that which acts. It is activity itself. More so, force is only insofar as it is both active and reactive. Newton's first law underlines this point. Even a seemingly passive force like inertia is a form of an activity. The giant stone at rest still expresses a force. And this is where Hegel makes a speculative claim. The whole world can only be understood as activity and counter-reactivity, or in Hegelian terms, dialectical force. The reason Hegel engages with questions of force is because it tells us something about our self-understanding. Again, force and understanding. He's asking how humanity can understand itself considering contemporary developments in science. Specifically, he tries to articulate our understanding in light of developments in physics, chemistry, electricity and magnetism. The laws of nature governing these discoveries are premised on a unified theory of forces which Hegel considers as dialectical, that is, they are expressions of attraction and repulsion. The relatively recent developments in force cannot but put into question our understanding of what consciousness is. And what the discourse in force reveals is that our naive certainty, our sin certainty of the world, of real things and objects becomes more and more flimsy. Our naive understanding of real things or objects is not at all valuable for giving us a coherent picture of our self-understanding. Instead, we must grasp something counterintuitive. That table, that pin are now only intelligible in terms of interacting forces, even if it does not immediately appear that way. In one sense, this is not something so new in the history of philosophy. An ancient atomist like, say, Lucretius thought our minds reflected the motion of atoms, which were not immediately present to consciousness. What is new, though, is Hegel provides a picture of our self-understanding as a reflection of counteracting forces, or in Hegelese, the self-negating activity. The aim of the chapter on force and understanding is to show us an entwinement of force and understanding. If we come to the self-understanding that the world itself is only force, then we must accept that understanding itself is only force. Although, in the next chapter, he will call the force of understanding desire. The point to understand regarding the status of consciousness is that consciousness is not a thing. It's not intelligible as an object. It is not something. What force shows us is that consciousness is a negation of its own immediate conscious experience and perception. More specifically, the chapter Force and Understanding demonstrates that mind and matter are inseparable. Consider the following passage. The inner world, our supersensible beyond, has, however, come into being. It comes from the world of appearances which has mediated it. In other words, appearance is its essence and, in fact, its filling. The supersensible is the sensuous and the perceived positive as it is in truth. 
but the truth of the sensuous and the perceived is to be appearance. The supersensible is appearance qua appearance. Now, what does this enigmatic passage mean? Hegel is here suggesting that we have known that what we have known as the supersensible is now only intelligible as the realm of forces, or here appearances. Appearances in this register are no longer to be considered as secondary, but reality itself. The phenomenology of spirit is not metaphysical in the traditional sense of the meta as an after, an outside, or a beyond. The truth is the world itself, our experience of the world itself, where we understand experience in a broad sense of attracting and repelling forces. The world experiences according to the same laws by which the mind experiences. We must find the absolute in the imminent natural world. The metaphysical activity itself, which means our self-understanding itself, is therefore historically variable. We really do have something fascinating and new here. Contrary to the customary depiction of Hegel as an idealist rather than a materialist, we are now in a position of understanding that any understanding of the world as either purely material or purely immaterial is untenable. Forces are not matter, at least in the sense that a conventional philosophical materialist would say that we can reduce all explanation to its material parts. Equally, forces are not immaterial in the sense that they are derived from consciousness itself. Forces are pure activity. For Hegel, this tells us something utterly profound about what human self-understanding is. If the human being is a self-interpreting animal, both sensuous and intelligence, then we now have the grounding to move to the next section of the phenomenology of spirit, where Hegel starts to ask, what is the meaning of life, effectively? Here, the purpose of human life is to understand itself as both in itself and for itself. Put awkwardly, to become a mind that is matter and a matter that is mind. Although I don't think Hegel would be best pleased with that formulation, as the terms mind and matter are not sufficient. But the more we progress through the phenomenology, the more we see mind as reality, a real concrete existence. The mind is not something detached, disinterested, which looks out upon the world through the windows of our eyes, but is part of it. For Hegel, this is a simple point, an elegant point, and really, for him, one of the greatest insights a philosopher can give to the world, which is that the mind is embedded in the world. This is the realisation of the truth of nature after Leibniz and Newton. Again, the rational is the real and the real is the rational. And for Hegel, there really is no turning back because a force... The principles of matter and the principles of mind are the same thing. This also disrupts a traditional understanding of agency, where I am a mind which is in some degree in charge of my body and its relation to bits and pieces of the external world. Such a thought is actually unintelligible for Hegel, since to say something like, I think of something, then put it into action, makes no sense precisely because I am action. My true self is therefore not some ghost in a machine operating behind experiences, as Descartes and Kant might have it, Rather, action is my true self. For Hegel, the human is a force that continually negates itself. If I am to understand my life as meaningful, in the sense that it has a purpose, it is realising that I must commit myself to that labour of activity. I must continually negate what I am and commit myself to the fact of my own dialectical motion. Now, Hegel is not necessarily being prescriptive here. That is, he's not telling us what to do but he is pointing out that if we are to try and find meaning, it requires making commitments, engaging in projects, and seeing myself as an active part of the world. Not as easy as it might sound. Indeed, existential psychotherapists place great importance on this 
this insight. That is, that a deficiency in meaning derives from our inability to grasp ourselves as part of the world, our belonging to a world or part of a community. Cognitive inertia is precisely an inability to discern oneself as a being of action, purposive, able to take decisions in tandem with the world and the community we inhabit. Marx will later call this alienation. Here again, though, we see the central importance of philosophy for the modern world. Philosophy is that human enterprise which allows us to see how we overcome our basic passivity, insincertainty. He's not saying that we can't become passive or want to delude ourselves or luxuriate in the world of common sense. Indeed, we are quite often seduced by this all of the time. But his point is that I can reach a more accurate self-understanding once I realize myself as an active negating being. And for the human being, action is most truly action when it is moral action. I'm only insofar as there are others. Once I see this, I can truly come to a full under, fuller understanding of myself. This force that I am exists only insofar as it is contradicted by a force of equal measure. And that is another person. Self-consciousness exists only in relation to others. The fourth chapter of the Phenomenology of Spirit deals with what Hegel calls the truth of self-certainty. Here Hegel is basically asking, what is it to know something? Where the first three chapters concern the brute experience of inner life and outer life, in chapter four Hegel shifts gears somewhat, making some radical claims about what it is like to be a knower. As we have seen, the truth of consciousness is not intelligible merely in terms of external facts, nor is it to be found in a disinterested subject, or Kant's transcendental ego. The self is first and foremost an activity of life, and thus is a subject of life. One could consider this in a biological sense, i.e. that the self is a byproduct of organistic striving, but that would not be the full story, as humans are not simply reducible to organistic functions. Instead, the force of self-certainty is a kind of will. As self-conscious beings, we are concurrently willing, wanting, desiring beings, striving beings, if you like. What it is to be a subject of a life is to be an engaged, passionate, but most of all active being with a desire to achieve, to accomplish. Again, Hegel is not being prescriptive at this point. That is, he's not telling us what we ought to achieve or ought not to achieve. He's only claiming, at this point, that self-consciousness desires completion, which should not be understood as complete or finished, but as the desire to be complete. In other words, the motive force of self-consciousness is that it continually desires completion. If this is the case, we can therefore say self-consciousness is desire, since it is always desire completion. But Hegel is never that simple. There are three further implications that I would like to focus upon. The first implication is that because self-consciousness constitutes self as a desire to be completed, this also implies self-consciousness is inherently incomplete. The desire to be complete is inherently something that might not be accomplished. Or if we ever approximated completion, there is no guarantee that such completion would not subsequently be lost. The second implication follows from the first. If self-consciousness's desire to be complete is incomplete, this means self-consciousness is inherently provisional. The force of my will is impeded by the force of the world as it appears to us and the force of the will of others. Self-consciousness, as the term suggests, is self-regarding. However, we should not take from this that self-consciousness is necessarily fundamentally selfish or solipsistic. Quite the opposite, in fact. Self-consciousness requires confirmation and testing in the real concrete world. 
this means that our self-consciousness is fundamentally oriented towards practical tasks. If you think about it, if self-consciousness was complete, there would be no need for self-consciousness to do or engage in anything. The provisionality of uh, self-consciousness is here crucial. Provisionality always means that self-consciousness is always a type of in order to. By this I mean that because self-consciousness is desire itself, self-consciousness posits itself as the being that does things in order to attain X, Y, and Z. And this ties in with the theme of all these lectures. Self-consciousness is always transcending itself or going beyond itself or must understand itself as a striving being. We are, as such, concernful beings whose principal's interest is willing our existence into being. In other words, self-consciousness is continually realising itself, overcoming itself, proving itself, testing itself, and demonstrating autonomy in the face of any impediments we encounter in the course of a life. The final implication follows if self-consciousness is desire, and desire seeks to continually complete itself, despite its inherent incompletion then the ultimate form of completion is the death of a life. Death presents the ultimate impediment to all the tasks that we are completing. Between birth and death, however, we are alive. Death is nothing other than the circumscription of all possible phenomena between birth and death. In Hegelese, death is absolute negativity, the ultimate limit for us. But as subjects of a life, death is always a question imposing itself upon us in all the tasks we engage. In another sense, Death is constitutive of life. Here we have a pure Hegelian contradiction. Death is life. Where life is the continual act of self-sustaining in the face of death. But in more concrete terms, self-consciousness is striving. Self-consciousness as desiring beings entails we devote ourselves to the project of maintaining ourselves as living beings. We do share the status with animal life where we maintain ourselves in terms of striving for the basics, that is the circle of satisfaction, as feeding, drinking, seeking shelter, avoiding or overcoming predators. That is true. But there is also a human sense of self-maintaining that we must add to this animal concept of striving. Life must be sustained, which is our purpose, if you like. We must see ourselves as being that negate ourselves, which is to say, there is a continual gap between my immediate present natural being, let's call it appetite of existence, and the tasks and commitments I must engage in to sustain myself into a future. We continually live the gap between what I am and what I want to be. Or more simply, we are always at odds with ourselves. The latter falls within the realm of action. Self-consciousness must be tested must make commitments beyond our immediate self-regard, our immediate self-relation, and is constituted primarily by the threat of failure imposing us by living. Basically, what we are is open to revision, alteration and contestation. One of the primary sites where self-consciousness is contested comes in the forms of others, or other self-consciousnesses. Others are inevitable. The assertion of my desires must be challenged by other desiring and active beings, since others, like me, are also beings whose life is at stake, and who are also beings that will die. Therefore, in its extreme form, the life of others is a site of potential death. Any interaction is inherently a negotiation about the fact that those I interact with will die. Ultimately, 
what distinguishes human life from just appetitive life is humans hold the desire to assert self-authority, to establish their freedom, despite death and in the face of the potential threat that others provide. In a simple way, what is at stake when we meet others is whether your desire to self-actualize and the other's desire to self-actualize becomes cooperative, confrontational, or both. If the purpose of life is self-maintaining and self-organization, then at some point I will meet another self-consciousness who is committed to their own self-maintenance. Basically, there are other people with wants, desires, and the urge for self-satisfaction. If self-consciousness is desire itself, if we cannot but confront other forms of self-consciousness who also desire, then one blunt way to resolve the other as an impediment to me is to kill them. If life is a form of striving, then the only immediate resolution to the impediment imposed to my autonomy is a complete understanding of the other as mere biological life. The other is there to be killed, not maintained as a life. While this might sound melodramatic, there is a basic sense of master-slave dialectic at work in our everyday life. What it is like to be the desiring, self-conscious being that is a human is that we are beings that confront death continually to a greater or lesser degree. Normally, when we countenance others in our daily life, we do implicitly perceive them, either wittingly or unwittingly, as a form of threat. This could be a threat to our status, or it might be just a simple activity as crossing a road at night, when we see someone approaching on the same footpath, or not using our usual neighbourhood ginnels, or locking our doors when we leave our house, or making sure we have a variety of different passports to protect ourselves from cyber hackers. In this basic form of encountering others, we encounter them as not necessarily vectors of consensus or prior agreement, but instead we exist with a natural assumption of hierarchy. And that natural hierarchy is asserted as lordship or bondage. This state is not desirable for Hegel, nor the human being generally, since it does not offer a satisfactory resolution of our encounters with others. Also, this view of human encounters cannot be understood as endorsing a form of self-interest, since the possibility of an imposed debt does exactly the opposite of maintaining self-interest. The way to think of it is that our relations with others is just hard. Sharing a life with others is not easy. It is a struggle. Any desire for completion is frustrated and mediated by the others and their desires. I don't think either that Hegel is suggesting that the master-slave dialectic is something he or we naturally valorise. If followed to its logical conclusion, that is a fight to the death, the dialectic of lordship and bondage cannot guarantee any form of social stability, consensus or unanimity. What has come to be known as the master-slave dialectic is about a clash of competing desires for self-sufficiency. Famously, mastery and slavery emerge from a master who asserts himself as the source of all authority for what counts as a life. The slave is deemed not to be a subject of a life, or in the worst iterations deemed to be identical with animal life. This amounts to dysfunctional recognition. The slave sees the master as one who does not discern the slave's inherent desire to assert their life or their autonomy or become free. Subsequently, the slave challenges this authority, recognising that the master's assertion of force or authority is defective, as the master is lacking in a recognitional capacity, which makes explicit that the master's assertion of autonomy is dependent 
and is dependent on the activity and labour of the slave. This, in turn, means that the master is not in fact autonomous, but slave-like, in their incapacity to recognise. The mutual dependence of master and slave shows that conflict and mutual antagonism are in some sense the basis of all social relations. This situation is in some sense inevitable and follows from Hegel's account of the self as a desiring being. Any particular self will have both animal desires and a desire for recognition, which inevitably leads to a state where we are potentially thwarted by external objects or others. This, however, is not the end of the story, not by a long way. This state of affairs is unsatisfactory, since the master and the slave are effectively in a state of defective recognition. The question which the master-slave dialectic imposes upon us is about the conditions of coexistence, are posed in a more trite way what we need to do to get along despite the inevitable disputes which arise. By way of conclusion, the move from sense certainty to force and understanding shows us two basic things. Firstly, that mind and matter are inseparable. Secondly, mind as a form of self-consciousness is constituted through forces of attraction and repulsion. Self-consciousness is itself a form of desiring activity. This in turn enables Hegel to see that as a desiring subject, this desire is also constituted by other forms of self-consciousness, which leads us to a situation of hierarchical dissymmetry. Ultimately, what the master-slave dialectic shows is that rather than viewing the human being as a Hobbesian war of all against all, the human attains a situation where we desire principles and forms of institutional life, norms, which we can be which can be turned to to govern the eventuality of such hierarchy arising. If we remain in master and slave realms, modes of being, uh, this is not satisfactory for master or slave. If we dig more deeper into this basic form of mutual antagonism, we see that it is governed by a desire for social justification. That is, once those in mastery or servitude recognise themselves as agents, we see that the master-slave dialectic requires further constitution through the social world of explanation, assertion, or in an ethical register where we demand reasons for actions. The point being, and it is important to remember, Hegel is not saying hierarchy is a good, nor is it definitively natural. The assertion of mastery is inherently self-destructive. The master, after all, becomes dependent to the point of worthlessness. Equally, the bondsmen, through many complications, come to recognise themselves as forms of animal life which need to be surmounted. But the slave's assertion of freedom itself requires the concept of mastery to establish itself. Thus, the key point for Hegel about the master-slave dialectic is that it reveals mutual reciprocity as the primary mediator of an individual's desiring. Hegel deems that self-consciousness only attains satisfaction in other forms of self-consciousness. In other words, the master and slave, indeed all of us, are striving to be free. If we remain within the master-slave dialectic, we are asserting our autonomy with defective forms of self-recognition, since we are only asserting our own autonomy, which precludes the fact that self-recognition is a form of mutual recognition. In the master-slave dialectic, we misrecognize the autonomy of the other, but also ourselves as constituted by others. To step beyond this form of recognition, this impasse, 
we need to appeal to a universal recognition. And that is that all individuals are self-conscious, striving, particular beings. But equally, that all humans are universal in the desire to assert that autonomy. Thus, the master-slave dialectic concludes with a more transcendent desire, and that is the desire for justice as collective self-legislation. Put in a more poetic way, as Dr Martin Luther King said, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Or, in Hegelian terms, one is free where all are free.